Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. I think a lot of people see Orthodox Jews as being stuck in another time. Um, and look, the reality is running this organization for really since 2007. So that's like, I guess, 14 and a half years by now. Um, what I've learned is that there are a variety of different Orthodox Jews out there. Some People are stuck in another time, perhaps. Maybe things are too slow moving in some ways. At the same time, um, lots of people are sort of in touch with the latest things that are happening in terms of news, in terms of world developments, in terms of different types of progress. And that's kind of an interesting thing to consider. How do you both believe in an unchanging you know, uh, way of life that has been true for thousands of years? And at the same time, work with progress. And I think really my understanding of how these two things work together is that the Torah never changes. The truth of the Torah are always there, but our understanding of the world, um, of the way the world works, of the way human beings work, um, that is able to progress over time. And what that can do is help us better understand how to paskin, how to make a ruling within Jewish law when we understand the world around us and the human beings inside of us um, in a more um, complex and more accurate way than where things were thousands of years ago. Um, and it's a great segue to discuss the topic of mental health in the Orthodox community because um, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, obviously mental health began, we know, you know, Jung and Freud, that was certainly, you know, many decades ago that the, you know, the study of, uh, of mental health and uh, psychology, psychotherapy, um, I guess, became popularized in the world. Maybe our guest today can give me more info on that. But then sort of getting over the stigma of having mental health issues and normalizing mental health is something that the world is doing more and more. Um, and the Orthodox community, certainly parts of it, and I would say diverse parts of it are getting more and more comfortable with that. Um, and so to, I would say, normalize mental health even more, um, there's actually a mental health shop happening this coming Shabbos. Um, and we have with us today, Dr. Rachel Goodman, um, to speak with us about, you know, sort of where we are as a community on the topic and what this Shabbaton is about and why it matters. Um, she's a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice with over 20 years of experience specializing in the areas of anxiety, depressive disorders, trauma, memory disorders, and the prevention and wellness of mental and cognitive health. Uh, Dr. Goodman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, if there was ever a time to sort of deal with mental health issues, probably a worldwide pandemic where people are trapped inside, not able to have regular events or normal socialization, or even anything to look forward to, is probably a pretty popular time for people in the mental health profession to uh, have lots of work and um, for people to be talking about this because it's basically affecting everyone, right? Absolutely. So I think that the silver lining of the pandemic, if I may say, and I obviously am very well aware of the horrible things that have happened in this pandemic and don't want to ignore them. But in my opinion, as a mental health professional, the silver lining is that we've gotten a window into what it means to struggle with your mental health. And I think that's true for every single one of us. Uh, and we've heard from people who we worked with prior to the pandemic, oh, now people know what it's like for us to experience anxiety or depression or loneliness or otherwise. So I think we started at the beginning of the pandemic 
every single one of us on some level, whether it was diagnosable or not, having intense anxiety and fear about what was going on and everything just changed so rapidly. Uh, and then we kind of got into, I guess, a groove, even though it wasn't fun to be stuck at home by any means. And also very scary to be watching what was happening, but we maybe got used to it because that's what we do as people. And then it changed and you know evolved over time. And the longer that we had to stick with this, the harder it was um, to feel the isolation from people and loneliness and even the loss of touch. Uh, you see children that can't uh, hug their grandparents and all of that. I know I'm in Canada, in the US, I know you guys are way ahead of us in terms of vaccines and that's given you uh, kind of it, more excitement and getting back to normal. We're a little bit behind you. So we're still struggling with some of that. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm someone that works from home. So <laughs> the truth is that when I, I sort of had this fear at the beginning, like, will the supply chain break down? And, you know, because you see movies about outbreaks or pandemics and it's like, you know, we feel so insulated. And then as it's coming forward, um, it seems, you know, oh gosh, could our worst fears actually be imagined? I remember certainly having some of those thoughts at the beginning, but the truth is that my normal setting is on not going anywhere, working on my couch and just sort of being perfectly happy with that. So um, I saw my family who was used to <laughs> being outdoors and socializing a lot of, you know, my children, my husband, that was a much more drastic life change for them than what I was used to. Um, and I, it's interesting, one of my children she felt like school was less friendly this year. And I told her, well, you don't see smiles anymore. So just even like, you know, even when they went back to school and they're having their regular activities, the lack of seeing the full range of emotions because you only get half a face. I think, you know, it's just these subtle things that really can kind of throw things off of people. Oh, I agree with you 100%. I mean, I think, I don't know how old your daughter is that you're referring to, but um these kids are going to be impacted for many years to come. Certainly younger kids. I have a friend who has a two-year-old who would have been a very social child, but hasn't left her house or met anybody or doesn't have any friends. And it's very, very strange uh, way to grow up. And all of our kids, I think, on that level are being impacted, whether educationally, socially, um, emotionally, and otherwise. Do I think that that's going to cause, you know, a huge amount of mental health disorders. Not sure. I, I, the theme of this Shabbaton that we're doing this year, each year we choose a different theme. This year it's resilience. So I, I really do believe that people generally are resilient. That doesn't mean that we won't be struggling in our own ways and there won't be more diagnoses of mental health disorders and there won't be more people reaching out for therapy. But overall, I, I think we, you know, we see as a people um, we, we do get past things and we grow from them. So let's talk about sort of the destigmatization of mental health. Um, my friend, Mayan Bialik has a podcast, uh, you know, uh, the Bialik breakdown where she's going through mental health stuff. I feel like more and more we're seeing people just talking about it more openly. Would you say that there was any impetus in secular society that has destigmatized mental health in the secular world? And then as the orthodox kind of maybe follows a little bit more slowly, um, kind of what, what has moved us forward in destigmatizing this topic? 
So I do think globally that uh, it is becoming more destigmatized and people are becoming more comfortable to be open. I think that's true of a lot of things in the secular world. People are talking about their sexuality and gender and, and other things much more openly than they did you know, 10, 20, 50 years ago, of course. Um, and, and thankfully, I think that mental health in the same way has become more destigmatized. Uh, and, and there's just more awareness of it and more available resources, which is a wonderful thing. Not enough, but there are more. In the Jewish community, I think, as you said very clearly, we're always behind on these kind of things, but I do think that it's improving. I think people like Mayim Bialik and um, other Jewish organizations, especially in the religious community, um, are encouraging people to be more open. That being said, there's still a lot of secrecy um, about this. And in my experience in the population that I work with, it ends up being with a lot of um, young women, whether it's pre-marriage or marriage age. And there's just a lot of secrecy because of shiduchim and people not wanting to share that they are in therapy or that they have a diagnosis or that they're on medication or people refusing to take medication because of it. So there's definitely a lot of work to be done, but I do see, thankfully, that we're moving forward. Yeah, in some ways, I feel like the, the shidduch dynamic, um, and it's interesting because I'm not sure if you're watching season three of Shtisel, but um, yes. it's dealt with mental health issues there and also dealt with some of the ridiculous things that come out, uh, you know, sort of to preserve a certain um, image in terms of shidduchim. And as someone that is both interested in improving the perception of the Orthodox community and also interested in improving the Orthodox community, I've tried to wrap my mind around what could we do to kind of lessen the pressure around um, appearing perfect in terms of shidduchim, because in terms of um, creating mental health issues and anxiety, I have to imagine that that is, um, you know, plays a big factor in that. Let's go to history now. Let's jump back to history before we jump forward to the Shabbaton itself that's coming up this weekend. Um, did I get it right with sort of the beginning of uh, secular knowledge around mental health issues? Freud and Jung, was that kind of where it started with um, the secular world? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think so. I mean, I would say that if you look at sources of uh, the importance of kind of taking care of yourself um, in the Jewish world, that that's been there all along. And that I really believe that if, if you look for it, there are sources to take care of your neshama and your, your brain in the same way as you would your body. Uh, I, I, it seems very obvious to me, maybe I'm biased, but I, I think if you speak to any rabbi, they would tell you that that is true. But yes, from a cultural historical perspective, I would agree with you that it did come much more from the secular society and then start to feed into um, our community as well. Are there any, so that was going to be my next question, um, if I got my secular timeline right. So what are some of the sources that we can look to now and say, ah, that was talking about mental health all along. Anything stick out in particular? Well, um, I, I can't think of anything in particular. I mean, I guess maybe if you're thinking of, um, you know, uh, trying now it's escaping me, but, but certain books that have been written on kind of taking care of your, of your health and how important it is. And that you, there's a mitzvah to, you know, take care of your health, even over Shabbat. And right. I think that we saw that 
last year during the pandemic. I don't know if you were aware, but there was a huge movement of people um, around Pesach time who were signing up for being on hotline or giving out their phone number to people to, that you could call me if you are in distress, whether it's on Shabbos or Yontif. And I mean, there were major rabbis in the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox communities who, who jumped on that and put their names on it and said, absolutely, without question, we have to protect people and their mental health is, you know, comes before celebrating the Shabbat. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, and look, we're dealing with um, a population of ex- Hasidic ex-Haredi Jews at um, at Makom, and we have definitely people that have all sorts of mental health issues, and you know all these things around uh, Shabbos and three-day Yom Tovim. Um, we were very connected to the struggle um, that that the pandemic, um, you know, I guess made even more acute. For sure. Um, definitely uh, has been on my radar. All right, so now let's um, turn to the Shabbaton. So. Um, who is organizing it? Who's involved? Um, when and why did this get started a few years ago? So uh, this has always been my dream to have a Shabbat that is similar to, I don't know if you're familiar with the Shabbatot that take place during the year uh, with regards to infertility or special needs that um, shuls across North America and elsewhere dedicate that Shabbat to that issue, which is an amazing thing. And I've always felt that it's very powerful for us to come together on a Shabbat and everybody saying, this is important and we are proud to talk about it. And we're going to talk about it out loud and we're going to support this community out loud. And so I've wanted to do that forever. I have a a friend here who goes to the same shul as I, his name is Yair Myers. He's my co-chair. And we started this and we're both kind of dreamers and like to think big. And uh, we spoke to our rabbi and he suggested we start small, which is okay. And so three years ago, we started in Montreal locally, which is where we live. Uh, But we got 18 shuls to come together uh, on the same evening, and we were fascinated by how many people showed up and the kind of people that showed up. We had people from the Hasidic community to the uh, religious, conservative, reform, reconstructionist community all in our shul. I don't think that's ever happened on the same night. And we had an entire Shabbat um, with uh, a speaker that came. Uh, I'm sure you know him, Dr. David Pelkovitz, and he was our scholar in residence that Shabbos. And then we were going to do it again last year. We've always had the intention of trying to spread out to other cities in North America. And because of the pandemic, we had to go virtual. And so that gave us the allowance to start reaching out to people in other cities. Uh, And last year, our topic was anxiety through the lifespan, which felt very appropriate after the pandemic had started and everybody was struggling with anxiety. And this year, uh, we are fully virtual from the start. Dr. Rona Novik, uh, who is a world-renowned psychologist and the head of the Azraeli School of Education and has written on resilience, is our scholar in residence. We have a Thursday night mental health symposium with some local speakers, as well as Dr. Novik being the keynote speaker. That's Thursday evening from 7.30 to 9 Eastern. Uh, Friday, we have a workshop dedicated to teens And uh, different schools have registered with us, but teens can register individually if their school has not registered at 10 a.m. Eastern. 
um, trying to help these these kids, these high school kids who have suffered so much, uh, kind of give them a chance to talk about what they've been through and then also how to move forward. And on Sunday morning, we have a mental health morning where Dr. Novick will be speaking from 10 to 11. And then from 11 to 12, Mark Fine, who is a mental health advocate, and he himself has struggled with depression throughout his life, will be speaking about his experiences as well. And are any communities doing uh, Shabbos programming? on the Yes. Yes. So it's a bit funny because of our situation. Again, in Canada, we are a lot more locked down than you guys are. Uh, But the goal has always been that every single shul that, that joins and puts their name on this program doesn't just join the events that we offer, but does something in their own shul. That's for each shul to decide. And obviously, it depends on whether they're in person or not. But Many shuls are having speakers, many shuls are having the rabbi uh, focus the drasha, that Shabbos, on uh, mental health. Many are um, just kind of sending out an email or resources. Um, The OU has done an enormous amount of work after kind of us communicating with them and have sent out a ton of resources and have actually uh, given Zoom classes to rabbis on how to make your drasha focused on mental health for that Shabbat. Amazing. And is there is there an organization? Like, are you part of an organization or it was just a few people got together? So this is a kind of a grassroots organization that's based at our shul, which is TBDJ, Tifereth Beth David Jerusalem in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And we also have a few organizations that have been with us all along. One is um, called OMETS, which is the equivalent of what's probably in the United States, the JF and CS, kind of the local uh, community organization for the community members, mental health, etc. And we also have an organization called AMI Quebec, which is our local chapter of NAMI, which is the National Association for Mental Illness, which is the organization dedicated towards family members of people with mental health issues. And uh, so on Thursday night, we're going to be having a speaker from OMETS. We'll be having our rabbi speak about the rabbinic kind of perspective on mental health, the Jewish rabbinic perspective. And we're going to be having a woman from AMI Quebec speaking as well, who will be talking about her own experience, which is quite fascinating. She herself has struggled with mental health issues, and she has a daughter who is currently hospitalized for eating disorders. So she'll be talking about being a caregiver and herself being someone with lived experience. And in terms of partner organizations, we've been very lucky this year to get the support of the RCA and Yeshiva University. And uh, so it's, um, it's getting out there. And that's really our goal is, yes, to do this one Shabbat to come together, but also what happens the rest of the year? How do we support people with mental health issues? Amazing. Um, you know, you're talking about the topic of resilience um, for this Shabbat, Shabbaton, and I'm just going through my head trying to come up with some sources on resilience. I know that as a people, we're a very resilient people. Um, the source that comes to mind is Am Yisrael Chai, that sort of as um, bad things happen um, and we get, you know, either physically torn down by enemies, by, uh, you know, tragic events like what happened in Mayron last week um, when there's anti-Semitism. I feel like this sort of notion of Am Yisrael Chai, that kind of no matter what has been done to us, our people will continue, um, seems to me kind of like one of the most profound uh, sort of concepts around the idea of resilience. 
Did I get that right? Would you say that was me? I, I would agree with you 100%. I think it's beautifully said because it's simple and yet it says it all. Um, I am a child and grandchild of Holocaust survivors. I live resilience every day. Um, I've had a window into that my entire life. I know there are people who have come from Holocaust survivor families who sadly have struggled uh, a lot in terms of uh, having parents with mental health issues. I've actually worked with that population quite a bit, but um, many of us have been very lucky to have been taught the lesson of resilience and that you just take the next step forward and that you, you know, you look towards the future and that you take each day as a gift. And um, I think that, you know, as I, I've been thinking about what to say on Thursday night, I, I wrote about my grandfather who at the time we certainly didn't know the diagnosis, but I'm sure he had post-traumatic stress disorder, screamed out every single night in nightmares and woke up in the morning smiling ready to face the day, ready to be there for us, ready to teach us that this is what you do. You embrace your Judaism and you celebrate, you know, Shabbatot and holidays and you be together and you live each day for what it is and what it offers to you. And you thank God for what you have. And uh, yeah, I mean, I just see that as, as resilience. My mother was hidden during the Holocaust by righteous Gentiles whom we've gotten into Yad Vashem. And that's a different kind of resilience of, you know, knowing that you can make the world a better place by doing something that is, was huge, huge. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her, but she just decided I'm not going to hate. I'm going to love instead. And, you know, we, we've lived that lesson since, uh, since we were born. That's the lesson that we've been taught by by my mother and my grandparents, and we try to transmit that to our children. I mean, now you keep segueing very perfectly for me to the topics I want to touch um, because, yeah, on the topic of resilience, and I feel like it's sort of impossible to discuss um, mental health in the Jewish community, you know, especially, and this is something that I think a lot of people are not aware of, and I was not aware of this either, um, that the Hasidic community is nearly 100% Holocaust survivors or descendants of survivors. Um, that were basically, you know, sort of due to fear of what was outside, rightly so, kind of put themselves into a closed system. And I think, you know, from our perspective at Jew in the City, seeing how the media depicts us and sort of showing the most um, scandalous and extreme and abusive situations out there um, and sort of showing them as normative, what I believe, you know, speaking to ex-Hasidic Jews is that, um, almost the, the way that Judaism was practiced and sort of spoken about and taught um, shifted due to some um, probably PTSD and, and people that never properly healed from the Shoah. Um, and that, that sort of became what turned into Judaism for them and what the media began reporting as, um, as orthodoxy or Hasidus, even though um, you know, that, that wasn't the way it was before. So are we, are we as a community like fully sort of grasping how how big this trauma on our uh, community was? Because in some ways I feel like the fact that I only recently realized that, you know, um, the community is nearly 100% survivors and what might that mean in terms of, you know, sort of bad um, practices that started, things that started. Um, do you think that we're, are we there yet or do we have a lot more work to do? I think that there is 
a lot more knowledge of that. And I, I hope, at least from what I see from being a child and grandchild of survivors and also somebody who works in this area, people are working to become more aware as that very scary date of the last survivor um, being alive uh, is coming too soon. And I think that there's a lot of research being done. There's a lot of effort being done towards it. Uh, you know, you see in Israel, um, there were big changes over time in terms of understanding about the Holocaust and what impact that had. And at first, nobody wanted to talk about it at all. And there was complete silence. And then people started coming out and talking about it. And then you had people like Steven Spielberg, who were, you know, encouraging people to to talk uh, publicly and to be recorded. I know a guy in New York, I'm on this uh, Facebook group called Children of Holocaust Survivors, who he specifically records Hasidic Jews uh, who are Holocaust survivors and, and will, you know, constantly post, if you know of anybody who has not yet told their story, who has not had the chance to share, obviously we want to share the story for the purpose of our children and grandchildren knowing it, but I also think that there is a processing for that individual of being able to speak it and being able to let it out and being able in a certain way, not that it takes away from their pain, but to kind of know that I've put it out there and now I can, in a way, put it away um, in a box. And when I want to, I can come back to it. That's kind of what we do with exposure therapy and in PTSD. Uh, we give people a chance to have a voice and to process their trauma and then not to have to live it every day. And of course there are reminders, but the, each, you know, kind of trigger becomes less, less painful because they've had a chance to, to speak their voice, to speak their truth. Um, so yeah, I, I think we're doing better. It, is it, is it perfect? Definitely not. But I also think there's really beautiful, wonderful things if you get a chance to um, learn about Hasidism. And I know that's what you do. And so you have that insider view and you're giving people the chance to see that. Um, in my work, I see a lot of Hasidic uh, women, some men, but more so women. Uh, and just to hear the, the way that they put family first um, and actually what I've been surprised by the most, not that this is related to the Holocaust, but I, I have so many, and maybe I'm coming with my preconceived notions about what their relationships would be like because they didn't date before or know each other before, but the beauty of their interpersonal marital relationships and the, um, the way that these men care for their wives and will put them first and are worried about them and really, you know, make an effort to be there for them as, as a friend, as a partner. It's really very beautiful. It's interesting. I love to hear you talk about that because of course we never get any reporting of that in any media and any news stories in any fictional media, those, those you know, beautiful moments that are all over the place are never actually known. And what ends up happening is that even members of the Orthodox community end up having a skewed version of the community based on the media that we consume as opposed to um, in-person you know, knowledge of, of the community. Um, we've got about two minutes to go. I wanted to mention one thing, I'm not sure if you've um, considered this, but I spoke to a grandchild of survivors um, from New Square, who actually realized that her grandparents' response wasn't overly dour or sad or pessimistic. It was too happy. It was right. too happy all the time. And right. so she realized that she did not actually have emotional regulation given over because in order to be 
too resilient. They had to always be the most positive and for that sure. space for um, her ability to be disappointed or negative. And so she actually developed, she became a play therapist with the blessing of the new square Rebbe learned and got certified and developed a curriculum to teach kids in Hasidic schools how to feel their range of emotions. So I look to someone like Sephora Gordon who did this as really a hero in this of really trying to put back the pieces of what was uh, taken apart. So um, just That's wanted to mention on the topic of resilience, like it never occurred to me that it could be in that direction too positive. Um, let us know, how do people participate? Where do they go to learn more? So you can come to our website, which is www.mentalhealth.tbdj.org, and you will see a registration link to be able to click on the different events that you want to join, whether it's Thursday night, Friday, or Sunday. Um, I think as of Wednesday, maybe I shouldn't say this, but you're not going to have to register anymore. <laughs> You'll be able to just go on and get the Zoom link automatically. And uh, we just hope that as many people as possible join us um, because we we want to show people out there that our community sees this as important. And I think the more people who join obviously have an opportunity to learn at each event, but also kind of show the importance that our community places on supporting mental health awareness and destigmatization. Amazing. Well, we wish you much Hatzlacha um, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And you can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.